Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we antagonise your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the second of a series where Professor Mark Andreevic deep dives into the issues of face recognition software. But first, here's news of foreign interference and antagonistic masks. Interference. The American government has been caught out manipulating political opinion in Australia to assist in President Trump's Cold War with China. The US State Department has been distributing a fraudulent document known as the Dossier with the title Timeline of Coronavirus Outbreak and PRC Cover-Up. The dossier claims to be new intelligence from the Five Eyes spy agencies that the coronavirus was manufactured in a lab in Wuhan. The dossier is what American spies call a non-paper that argues a case for American propaganda using news and academic sources from online rather than the promised new intelligence. The story was broken on the ABC by investigative journalist Dylan Welch. The dossier has also been debunked in the Sydney Morning Herald, who quoted senior Australian intelligence officials that the dossier contained no new intelligence, just 15 pages of quotes from public online sources to support a propaganda argument. Right-wing pundits in the US media have jumped on the resulting discussions from Australian journalists with glee. All of the Murdoch media, TV, print and radio, in Australia, have been running with the contents of the dossier as if it were true, at exactly the same time that Prime Minister Morrison, just after a phone call from President Trump, has been persuading nations around the world and the World Health Organization to stop working together on the pandemic and instead pursue a political witch hunt to blame China for the coronavirus. Australia has suffered serious trade problems as a result. The US State Department even roped in two Australian vaccine researchers to say that they don't rule out a man-made origin for the coronavirus because they had trouble believing that the virus could naturally be so infectious. This is the logical fallacy known as the argument from incredulity, and scientists should know better. The dossier even references an academic paper that was not published in a peer-reviewed journal, so journalists should have discounted it. The preprint described how the researchers had analysed the genes of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and couldn't see a close resemblance to any viruses in animals, so they concluded the virus must be man-made. This flies in the face of the evidence from a paper published in a peer-reviewed journal that examined the genes and found that the genetic differences between SARS-CoV-2 and the SARS and MERS viruses and the animal viruses that they evolved from are randomly distributed 
instead of clustered in the way that would show up if they were genetically engineered. The researchers' conclusion is that the coronavirus evolved naturally, and that even if someone had wanted to insert mutations randomly around the genome, nobody on Earth knows how to do this. Their paper was titled, No Credible Evidence Supporting Claims of the Laboratory Engineering of SARS-CoV-2, and was published in the journal Emerging Microbes and Infections. This political interference in Australia was a hostile act. The US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has some explaining to do. Masked? Face recognition systems have a problem when half their data are missing. As more people around the world wear face masks to help slow the transmission of COVID-19, governments and corporations are finding that having half your face covered messes up face recognition algorithms. The amount of trouble a neural network has recognising faces with masks is proportional to the size of the face database. Facial recognition systems with a few thousand faces can cope with only a small loss of accuracy, while face databases of millions do badly. A face database with billions like the one compiled by Clearview AI would completely stop working. At Australian airports, the last influx of travellers were asked to lower their masks for the face recognition cameras. In China, the government has assured people that their system still works. One woman spoke of how pleased she was to still make purchases with her face, despite wearing a mask. But another man told of how he had to step out of the crowd to lower his mask to get the payment system to recognise him. Many people around the world have found that their phones won't unlock when they're wearing a mask. NEC and other face recognition companies around the world are scouring the internet for photos of people wearing face masks so that they can retrain their system to recognise just eyes and cheekbones, as well as unmasked faces. There are 1,200 images in a face recognition database on GitHub for anyone to play with, taken without the consent of any of the people. Maybe you shouldn't post any masked photos to Instagram without getting your share of the profits for the use of your copyrighted photos by businesses. Do you consent to your photos of your masked face being used to train a system to identify pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong and China? The National Institute of Standards and Technology in the US is studying how well face recognition systems work with masks by digitally drawing masks onto the faces in their database. In March, researchers from China compiled a database with more than 5,000 masked photos they gathered online. Some people have gotten around the phone unlocking problem by uploading a photo of their lower face to the Face ID mask company to print onto face masks. They can then wear a mask that lets phones and surveillance recognise them. Of course, you could upload and print a mask with a photo of someone else's lower face, or you could just print a photo of a car licence number plate on your mask. Personally, I think it would be more fun to repurpose some old research from 2016 into antagonising facial recognition systems. The researchers found patterns of pixels that fooled the neural networks into either identifying them as a celebrity or as not having a face at all. They just printed the patterns onto cool glasses frames, but you could easily take the same patterns from the link on the Diffusion website 
and print them onto face masks yourself. A 2019 researcher has printed a specially designed mask to fool face recognition systems into seeing several faces, and others are selling lines of t-shirts and hoodies that claim to make you invisible to face recognition systems, so you can keep your urban anonymity. Links to all of these in the show notes. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Face recognition in the pandemic. Mark Andreevich is Professor of Media Studies in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. I spoke to him by Skype and I continued the conversation by asking him, how does shopping in the real world change when the shops recognise your face? And how the Australian government wants a face-based ID system. Those are Australian native bird noises in the background. One of the issues I've seen is the potential for shops to recognise you and change the price based on who you are. I was in Auckland earlier this year and there were shelves in the supermarket. Well, all of the shelves in the supermarket had the prices in LCD displays. So they could just change if they knew who you were and what your purchase history was, and if they could charge you more and get away with it. That's a very interesting question, and it's something that you know retailers have been experimenting with for a while in a variety of different ways. I, I remember a while back, Amazon.com had a pricing discrepancy. This had to be a decade or so ago. I haven't seen any recent coverage of this, but they had different prices appeared to you for whether you were signed in or not signed in to Amazon. So if it knew you were a repeat customer, it gave you a higher price because it assumed that you were already, you know, kind of locked into the system but if you were searching for a book and you hadn't logged in you'd get a lower price to entice you to purchase something through amazon so they were already experimenting with differential pricing there was a really interesting experiment it had to be i think it was maybe 20 years ago where coke developed machines that would change the price based on the existing conditions so if it was very hot outside the price of the coke on the coke machine would go up Uh, now people were not happy about this but dynamic pricing really only works without alienating consumers if it can be done in a way that's not clear to consumers what's happening. You know, once they start seeing that they're getting higher prices based on whatever information is available for them, that can have a potentially deleterious effect on their willingness to, to buy your product. So, uh, but you know, when we shop online these days, the ability to customize pricing to us based on knowledge about us, that we don't see what the prices that other people are seeing, uh, that opens up a whole can of worms in terms of how pricing works and the ability of retailers and other sellers to be able to extract what's called consumer surplus. Consumer surplus is the, is the difference between what we're willing to pay for a product and what we actually pay. So in many cases, 
we might be buying something that we would have been willing to pay a little bit more for and other sellers see that as potential surplus that can be captured. What if we could find out exactly how much they were willing to pay and extract all of that consumer surplus? And that's been a goal of the mass customized economy for a while now. The, the danger they run is alienating consumers, right? And probably the other component that's worth thinking about there is you could imagine potentially kind of pro-social uses of that type of customization, right? What if more affluent consumers for particular type of products could subsidize, you know, lower income consumers so that you could extract some consumer surplus from those who are able to pay and subsidize the consumption of certain necessary products for those who didn't have the resources to pay. And so you could imagine in a differently organized world some potentially pro-social uses. But, you know, the way we're going to experience it under the current conditions is extracting all of the value that's possible to extract from consumers to increase profits. Now, what you're saying about facial recognition as a part of that, of course, allows for more granular forms of customization. So they already have in shopping malls in Australia, facial recognition systems that gauge levels of interest in response to marketing appeals, right? So this is implemented in the Westfield malls, but they claim that they don't link this to identity. Once you can link to it, so they just, they can see if a particular advertising display is getting a lot of attention and I'm not sure, but, you know, perhaps they can extract some general demographics without ID from that. They, they say they don't link it to recognizing identification. But if they, can rec- if they can link it to who you are, of course, then they can do more background research to figure out what purchases you've made in the past, potentially even credit rating or other financial information that could indicate to them ability to pay. And then, yes, you have a kind of dystopian scenario where the consumers don't have information about how much the seller is willing to sell for, but the seller has detailed information about how much the consumer is willing to to pay. So you have a, a kind of unequal distribution of power in the market there and an unequal bargaining position. You can't bargain with the LCD that's customized based on your demographic information. It's not like being in a traditional bazaar where you can you know, try to engage in a one-on-one bargaining. In these pandemic times, is there a way for people to make what well, way for these companies to make money out of the viral pandemic with face recognition? Well, yes. I mean, they're thinking about these technologies that they're interested in shopping around that would engage in mass monitoring of populations to detect symptoms of the virus. So if you can couple body surface temperature recognition with identification and you can sell that to you know an, ent- an agency that's interested in screening the population let's say a company that wants to check shoppers or workers as they come through the door to see if they might be symptomatic then that would be one possible selling proposition f- for facial recognition it's also being used the mayor of moscow is using facial recognition reportedly to monitor quarantine so if you've been quarantined because you've been tested positive for the virus if you leave your house and go out in public there are cameras there that can capture you and identify you and see if your name is on a quarantine list and then fine you for violating quarantine so it can be used for that type of control of space monitoring who's allowed to be in which spaces and following up. So these are kind of security and tracking applications. And 
Of course, a lot of the implementation of the technology is around security and public safety. One of the big areas for selling the technology is to policing and security agencies uh, for identifying people in public spaces. And of course, there's issues with the current use of this technology. So I know in Australia, if you have travelled abroad and you come back, Passport Control will want you to look at a camera so that they can do face recognition to match you up with your passport. The problem is, of course, if you're blind, you can't look at the camera because you can't see it. Yes. In, in terms of face recognition being a barrier for people with particular conditions, I think that's a real issue. The passport cases tends to have a lot higher accuracy than the kind of general population forms of face recognition technology that I've been talking about, because what they do is, you know, they're, they're basically linking a photo they have with an existing photo in their database and a name that they've already got. So they're just verifying that your face is, you know, one-on-one -on -one match with, the, with what they've got in the database. And so the accuracy there tends to be relatively high compared to taking a photo of somebody appearing in a public space and then matching it across millions of other faces rather than trying to find a match with a particular identified face. So that's where you see the accuracy drop. But you're right, there are accessibility issues. I suppose the people who are developing the tech, they may be able to make the counter argument that in some cases, some barriers to entry could be facilitated by having facial recognition technology. So in, in some cases where forms of providing physical identification might be difficult because of conditions that people have, might be easier to do a face scan. So there might be the argument that there's some improvement to accessibility issues. So if, for example, I don't know, paying with your face for access to public transportation or even shopping might mean that folks who've got, uh, you know, may have some challenges with, uh, you know, um, providing identification manually, so on, that might facilitate access. But, but you're right, I think, you know, there are going to be issues around accessibility and use of the technology. And there's also, yeah. of course, the government's been pushing for this for years. Not only do they want the capability for police and the spies, but they also want an ID system based on face recognition, MyGovID. Is that progressing? Last I heard, they've sent the bill back for further examination because there were concerns about the range of uses to which the facial recognition database could be put. That creation of the database has already taken place, bringing together public record photos that are associated with passports and driver's license and creating a national database that could then be used for investigation of crimes. The concern was that it wasn't clear what level of crimes and investigations would be applicable for the use of the database. So there seemed to be general consensus that for things like anti-terrorism, this database you know, would be a useful resource. But then what about routine forms of policing? What if you're riding your bike and you run a red light? Can the image taken from the red light camera then be matched to a national database to ticket you as a, as a bike rider? So I think in order to get support for that bill, they were trying to restrict the widespread use of facial recognition for policing and keep it to crimes that were considered to be a high level of urgency and significance. So I suspect that's going to be, when they come back with a revised bill, 
they're going to be figuring out whether whether restricting the use to particular categories of crime might make it more passable politically. But yes, the idea of having that as a resource is something that intelligence agencies, security agencies have been pushing for for a while, not just in Australia, of course, uh, internationally. And of course, the issue, if it's used for ID, is that if you lose an ID card, you can replace the ID card. But if somebody takes over your face from a database, if they've hacked the database, you can't change your face. You can't send <laughs> it in and get a new one. Yes, that's a that's a very important point. Or if there's an error in the database, you can imagine the types of complications if the wrong data gets associated with your with your face. And it does raise the question, to what extent is face identity uh, capturable? You know, we don't walk around with our ID cards out there publicly, but we do walk around with our faces publicly exposed, right? So if you can scrape information about people's face from their face, images of people, this is where security is going to be super important because it's been demonstrated that some facial recognition systems can be scammed by just using a two-dimensional image, which is easily capturable from somebody in public. So they're going to have to be sophisticated enough. Well, I, I, can, I can give you an example, kind of a humorous example that came out of China. They have a system there, as you mentioned, uh, that in some places, it's a general facial recognition infrastructure. One of the functions that it's used for is to monitor even basic traffic infractions. So at busy intersections, there are these cameras, and if you cross against the red light, your face is displayed on a billboard along with your identification and information about your violation. But there was a case in China that was interesting, a well-known public figure, a TV personality, her face was on the side of a bus and that image on the bus actually triggered the facial recognition system, and she was accused of running a red light uh, because her face appeared in the traffic at the point where the bus was crossing. And so a two-dimensional image that was a representation on the side of the bus was taken by the machine to be the actual person. So if the technology is that easily spoofable or, or trickable, there are serious security concerns there, right? I don't know, you could imagine, what if, if it's being used for security purposes, what if you wear a mask with other people's faces on it, right? You can frame them in this way. The accuracy and the security of these systems is paramount and becomes more high stake the more that they're incorporated into high stake systems that affect people's lives. The authorities don't seem to need to prove that they need to invade our privacy this way anymore. So you've got Centrelink arguing that they want a system where pensioners would have to send a photo in to be recognised on the database to be able to apply for the pension. And now you've got councils around Australia, like there was a story recently, East Perth Council has set up a whole bunch of surveillance cameras that are linked up to a face recognition database without informing the residents. And they don't have to say it's for crime or terrorism or medical safety. It's just a trial. So... That's okay. <laughs> yes, this is part of their Smart City initiative. I think they got that part of that Smart City funding to set up this system for security. You know, one of the things that's come out of the research on Australian attitudes towards facial recognition technology, I remember seeing uh, a poll that came out when the nation, national database legislation was being promoted that showed that there was majority support on the part of the population 
for the implementation of the technology in the name of anti-terrorism. So when it gets framed as anti-terrorism technology, as a public safety and security technology, that does tend to get support. Now, it's not clear that people have full knowledge or awareness of the, of the various ways in which the technology can be used. But as you point out, security and safety is enough of a concern that it can be used to legitimate technologies that we may not yet have fully thought through what the consequences of their widespread implementation might be. And that's something that I think as a society, we need to think about fully. Rather than the ready equation of surveillance with security, we need to do some work thinking about what are some of the potential hazards of developing this technology and what are the potential security risks on the other side, you know, not the safety benefits, but the safety risks and downsides of, of developing this technology. And I think a lot more awareness and work needs to be done to investigating those potential downsides and to discussing them. It's not clear to me that we've had really an informed, publicly aware discussion about what it means to dramatically transform the way we experience space and the way that this technology will. That was part two of Professor Mark Andreevic talking about face recognition software in the time of the pandemic. Listen next week for the legal issues of grabbing faces around the world for profit. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MBR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolfe. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. 
You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.